Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. My name is Russell Kelty. I'm the Associate Curator of Asian Art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And I welcome you to a vast emporium, which looks at cultural exchange and hybrid works of art from the 16th to 19th century, uh, an era of global trade and kind of the rise of the global world. And the show is roughly curated in sections and galleries, moving from early 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, and then 19th century and beyond. And this first gallery is really dedicated to the influence of the Portuguese and obviously their travels throughout the world, which begot this first global age and the rise of this great hybrid works, which you see around you. And before we get started, I'll be talking about this screen, this Japanese screen created roughly 1600, around the time of Shakespeare and Caravaggio in Europe. Before I get started on that, I just want to thank really you know, this amazing legacy of uh, sponsorship and donations and benefaction over the last 30 years by people such as Michael Abbott, whose name uh, graces the gallery's walls, as well as Andrew Gwinnett and the Gwinnett family, Max Carter, the Hunter family, all of which have really begot us a spectacular collection. Uh, one of the probably more unique Asian collections in all of Australia. And if there was any one work which encapsulates this era and appears in every major exhibition around the world, whether it be the Met, the VNA, uh, you know, Tokyo National Museum, you name it. It is screens created by Japanese artists in the late 16th, early 17th century, which depict and describe the arrival of the Portuguese on their great black ships to an unknown port in Japan. And What's fascinating about these screens is you can read them literally as history. The Portuguese left, obviously, the western part of Europe, traveled around the Cape of Good Hope, which up to that point had been known as the Cape of Disaster because every other ship had you know, run aground or come to bad end, entered the Indian Ocean, established ports in Goa, Malacca, Canton, Nagasaki, and essentially created this global system along with the Spanish, which connected the world all the way around for the first time. And I often hear guides coming to give a tour of this show and describing that, those historical events, and that is very true and these screens can be used in that way. So can a number of other works of art in this gallery. But it actually speaks more to the way that Japanese people incorporated the Portuguese into their own conception of the world. And this is equally as important. The way that this is often presented is that the Portuguese arrived and kind of dictated the terms of engagement, but in fact, it was the Japanese. Because during this period, it was a very tempestuous period in Japanese history. It was the period of the samurai, the daimyo, uh, which would later culminate in the shogun and the rise of the Tokugawa shogunate and the Edo period, which was this great flourishing of art and culture. But at this point, it's still a little unstable and the, and the Portuguese and the Jesuits, of course, had to navigate this very unstable, difficult environment. And so for me, these screens not only present a historical narrative, but they actually present kind of a sacred narrative or narrative that is very particular to Japan and to some extent East Asia. Now to start off with, originally, it would be my guess, that there were actually two screens, a one on the left and one on the right. And there's about uh, 90 known examples of these, what are known as Namban Byobu, literally Namban screens. 
And they depict, usually, a Portuguese ship leaving China and arriving at Japan, and then the disembarkation of the Portuguese, along with a menagerie of objects and weird-looking things. And exoticism is the key word here. The artists who are creating these screens were not only looking to present the arrival of the Portuguese, but also their kind of menagerie of exotic gifts and goods from around the world. They themselves being the most exotic and at times grotesque-looking things that would come off the boat. But if we look at it very closely, we can see this massive boat, a carrick, Portuguese carrick on the left, and then the Japanese land on the right. And that's a very important duality. In Japanese culture, which obviously to some extent is, is influenced by Chinese culture, the sea is perceived as this kind of unknown, dark place filled with expectation of what could be found there and also trepidation at what could, be, what could come from the sea. And so, of course, the sea is black. It's not blue. It's very dramatically black and menacing. And the boats themselves, the carracks, are black. Now, there's a couple reasons that people interpret this. One is that the carrack itself was covered in tar. So when they arrived on the, these ports, at these ports on the western coast of Japan, they looked black and dark and menacing. Another interpretation is that the ships probably would have lost about half to a third of their crew along the way. And so they themselves were actually kind of, you know, when they arrived, there would be, probably be bodies being pulled off the ship. There would be a sense of darkness about them. The other idea is that in Japan, there's a duality between black and white. Black is often considered kind of darkness associated with the sea, whereas white is purity, culture, land. And so in Japan, the land is always primary to the sea. That's where culture happens. That's where all the important things happen. And so there is this dichotomy we see between these two. Now, as with many works in this display in particular, they pay to look closely at them. So it's the really fine details where you start to see things appear. So if we look at the ship, we see it's the way that the artist has presented it. Is he's kind of tipped the back towards us, tipped the front towards us. The perspective of it is not quite right. We look closely at it, we can see that it's inhabited not only by Portuguese, but by people of color. So probably people from Africa as well as Southeast Asia were picked up along the way to man these great vessels, which were the largest things moving in the sea at the time. We also see, if you look closely, a series of cannons. So you have to remember that the Portuguese uh, brought firepower to Japan. In about 1549, it's believed that a Portuguese ship ran aground in Tanegashima, which subsequently became a, a nickname for guns in Japan, the Tanegashima. And it was said that they ran aground, they were, they were found by some local Japanese people, and they brought the first guns into Japan, and about 50 years later there was 300,000 guns, and they played a pretty important part in the way that Japan was unified. We also see three masts, and of course people kind of zooming up and down the mast, almost like acrobats. I almost see it as a circus of sorts, this kind of exotic circus was, <laughs> was arriving on the shores of Japan. If you look, there is a small boat which is being pushed onto the shore, and if you look at the disembarking crew, you can see the captain seated with one of his, probably his first mates, watching all of these people disembark. You can also see a rather emaciated elephant. Now, there were no elephants in Japan. We know that there were no elephants brought to Japan until about 1728, so this in and of itself is a total fiction. There's also peacocks, both a symbol of Buddhism as well as a symbol of India from which Buddhism came from. 
There's also a frisky looking tiger with a band around its neck. And we know that there were no tigers living in Japan, and very few tigers brought to Japan until like the 19th century. But you have to remember that tigers appear a lot in Taoist paintings of dragons and tigers. So again, we see this idea that this isn't necessarily a realistic depiction of a disembarkation. This is a symbolic depiction drawn by it or painted by a Japanese artist. You also see some rather curious goat-looking creature, which I've been studying these things for many years, and I've never quite figured out what they are. We don't quite know. There's a, a, a dog on the right-hand side, as well as an Arabian horse. And so this great menagerie is being ferried along with all of these Portuguese characters to meet on the right-hand side a couple of Jesuits who are in these very dark and ominous robes. They actually have no feet. They look like they're kind of floating ghosts. And their heads are kind of crinkled and they have these gigantic noses. And so they're painted not particularly lovely, in, a, in not a particularly lovely way. They almost look grotesque. Now you may say, well, of course, when, when the Portuguese arrived in Japan, Portuguese didn't bathe every day like the Japanese did. They didn't shave every day or had more facial hair. Their clothes were probably a bit disheveled. They probably smelled a little funky. So the Japanese would have thought they were a bit kind of icky. But it actually turns out that in the eighth century, masks of foreigners who are arriving via the Silk Road were actually being created for plays known as Gigaku. And it turns out that these masks actually had exceptionally elongated noses. So it may be that instead of this representing an actual Portuguese Jesuit, it actually is a Jesuit Portuguese put into this envelope of what Japanese understood as foreign, already existent before the Portuguese arrived in the mid-1570s. If you look to the absolute right, you can see that there's an awaiting entourage of Japanese, probably Christians, people from the local port. And if you look even closer, and I only realized this a couple days ago, there's actually a child in a backpack uh, that is mixed race, probably from a bit of a liaison at the port, or possibly a symbol of some other, something else that the Japanese artist was seeing. Now, if you look to the bottom, you can see that there is a coterie of men, all in very formal wear, and they all have the kind of shaved pate and back knot of a samurai. And so this is a very important part of this story. The Portuguese arrived in Kagoshima, southern Japan in 1549, the Jesuits did, and they, were very, they had a very difficult time because Japanese language wasn't very well known, they didn't have a very good interpreter. But the one thing that impressed the, the lords of Japan at that point was the Jesuit art. You know, you think of this period in, in Italian, Portuguese art history, you think of Caravaggio, these great Italian masters. They found the works of art and sculpture, painting, oil painting and sculpture, quite moving. And actually one lord of Kagoshima, his mother was so moved by a vision of the mother and child, she said, I want some of these works of art. And so the Jesuits realized very quickly that while they couldn't necessarily proselytize through Japanese, they could do so through art. And so art became a key mover for the idea of Christianity in Japan. And so the Jesuits very quickly established uh, seminaries, which were painting schools near Nagasaki. They also established one in Kyoto. They established a church in Kyoto known as Nambanji, or literally the Temple of the Namban. And we know that there was processions on occasion from Nagasaki, from the west coast of Japan, into Kyoto. Now this idea of Namban works of art, Namban literally translates as southern barbarian. 
And it's used to describe this probably 1550, 1650 in Japan, where works of art were created under influence of kind of international style. And you see a, another work here next to it, sorry. Coffer, which is also considered in this envelope. It's quite distinct, quite different from what was being created in Japan at the time, and represents this fusion of European ideas, of people, also of, your, of ideas traveling along these great maritime roads that were established. Now, if you look up in the upper hand of the screen, you'll see that there's Jesuits on a kind of stepped platform walking to what looks like some kind of building. And that building very, very possibly could be a church, we're not quite sure. So we're, you know, there's a bit of ambiguity in, in that fact. The idea of the Namban became kind of this symbol of Jesuits, of Portuguese, of Spanish to a, to a lesser extent, Iberians. And the term itself, you may think, was meant to encapsulate this, this influence. But in fact, Namban, Southern Barbarian, is a reference to the path that the ships of the Portuguese traveled from Southern Chinese ports all the way up to the Japanese ports. And it also represents the way that Japanese and Chinese often considered the world. In Chinese and Japanese conception, the center, the culture, the land of China and Japan was at the center. And then as there were concentric circles of influence. And the farther out you got, the more of a barbarian you were. And so obviously the Portuguese coming from way over on the other side of the world would have been considered the most barbarian or barbarians. Now, often people believe that these screens would have been created in Nagasaki because that's where uh, you know, the Portuguese arrived. But it's probably more likely that these were created in Kyoto by what's known as the Kano School. And the Kano School is the longest running school of painting in the world. It ran for about 400 years. And it serviced the elite of Japan at the time who were not only noble and aristocrats, but also obviously the daimyo and what would become the shogunate. And so, as you can imagine, artists sitting in landlocked Kyoto, having never seen possibly a foreigner, having never seen a ship, where would they have come up with this wonderful idea of these Namban screens? Well, it's possible that the actual ship itself was copied from a European engraving brought in during this period by the, by the Portuguese. And it's more than likely that this idea of them inhabiting this, this kind of landscape, cityscape, was inspired by views of Kyoto. We actually have a couple in the gallery's collection uh, which depict processions and kind of downtown Kyoto and all the, the happenings of Kyoto. And so it's more than likely that these artists with these ideas brought these two together and created what we now know as Namban Byobu, these screens. Now the interesting thing about these screens is, is that they're actually not very tall. Usually screens are about 180, these are about 90. So they're small in size and it's possible that they weren't only used uh, by samurai and daimyo who were interested in trade with the, the Portuguese. You have to remember the Portuguese were bringing with them a great wealth of silk uh, from China, uh, Indian textiles, cotton textiles from India, uh, all manner of things from across the world. And the Japanese were exporting silver and, and other uh, lacquerware, obviously, uh, as is indicated by this coffer. And so, you know, these, these screens came to be a symbol of that, of that trade as well. Now, 
it's possible that these weren't owned by a shogun or a daimyo. It's possible that they were owned by a merchant who was making a wealth of money off of this, off of this trade. And so we don't, we're not quite sure, but what we do know is that these are the only pair or the only single screen in all of Australian collections, and so we're very lucky to have them. Now, it's important to remember what screens would have been used for in Japan in the 16th century if these were created back then. Byobu actually means wind blocker, and you have to remember the interior of Japanese architectural environments were very open. They were made of wood. Obviously, there was probably a central heating, which people cooked on, but you would have possibly slept. These would have been something to sleep in front of, something to block the wind from coming through these, these open, open design houses. And so it's always funny to me to imagine being in a house, sleeping next to this, and then thinking about these foreigners who are coming into Japan. And so, you know, this idea of the foreign, uh, this idea of the foreigner, is very much encapsulated in, this, in these screens. And they run for, you know, probably 1550 to 1650. The, at some point, the Jesuits run afoul with, with the ruling shogunate, and they kick out the, the Jesuits and the Portuguese in 1639. And so after that point, they start to, start to fade off. And this idea, this era of global trade in Japan starts to you know, ebb a bit. It's during this time when we see this most exotic kind of flourishing of it. And so these screens are a great representation of that. It's not, however, the end of the idea of the foreign ship and the way that the foreign ship becomes a part of Japanese culture. And so I just have a poem to read to you. <laughs> Nagaki yo no, to no nemori no, mina mezame, nami nori fune no, oto no yoki kana. And what this translates as is the long night in deep sleep, everyone awakes to the sound of a boat riding the waves. I wonder if the sound is fortuitous. And so the idea of the boat, of the foreign ship, not only is encapsulated in this ideas of trade and foreignness, but it also comes to symbolize uh, one's first dream, or Hatsuyume, which is very fortuitous during the Edo period. And it's said that the night after the new year in the Japanese calendar, you can have a dream of, if you have a dream of a hawk, if you have a dream of an eggplant, and if you have a dream of a ship, your year will be quite fortuitous and quite, uh, quite wonderful. And so, rituals of ships in particular, printed ships on papers with this poem, there was a ritual where you actually put it under your pillow or under your bed at night, and you hoped that you would have a fortuitous dream. You would hear the sounds of the waves on the ship, and it's supposed to bring to you these ideas that ships from across the sea, while you know, they could be dangerous, could be complicated, it also could bring great fortune along with it. And so when you walk through this, walk through this exhibition, you'll see a number of ships. There's, I think there's two or three ships in every single gallery. And realize during this time that ships were the great conveyors of ideas, of art, of people, and they change over time, and their meaning changes over time. So what I would recommend to you is if you come and take a look at this very closely, then go into the next gallery, and you'll see that there's a flat cabinet with two scrolls on it. 
And you can see the difference between a Portuguese carrick and what they call a takarabune, or a treasure ship, where this, this carrick and this idea of the foreign ship morphs into something more animated, more kind of fantastical during the Edo period, which was very peaceful, and at which the Portuguese had been kicked out of Japan, essentially. So I think I will leave it there for today, but what I would tell you is just, you know, have a good look at this, look at it closely, take a look at the people in it, the things in it, the exoticness of it, the exotic appeal of, of the, the Portuguese must have had for the Japanese. Just to put it in context, the Portuguese Carrick arrived every two years, and you can imagine there were no telephones, there's no internet, there's no letter kit, you know, very little letters are making it. The arrival would have been profoundly astonishing. And so this ship and these people and these works of art that, that you know, were carried along with it would have been profoundly disrupting to a Japanese person standing on the shores looking at this massive black ship that they had never seen before. And so it would have been akin to us seeing a UFO. Even today, it seems like we have much evidence of UFOs, but who knows? But even that is astounding. And so we have to kind of place ourselves in this context. You can't simply think of it as now ships, giant ships are, are readily seen. So it would have been astounding, and it's important to remember when you're walking through this exhibition that the works of art that were created were created out of this amazing sense of astonishment, both held by Europeans and Asians alike for these cultures that were coming together. And the last thing I'll say when walking through this exhibition is that while European engagement with Asia and Asian European engagement with, with Europe is the frame in which this is presented, actually inter-Asian trade and inter-Asian engagement appears much well before the arrival of Europeans and is actually more impactful in the long run. In particular, Japan's relationship with China is you know, a millennium of engagement and kind of influence. And so when we talked about this idea of the barbarians, that's very much a Chinese idea. And the way that the Japanese rulers dealt with foreigners, the Portuguese, the Dutch, and so forth during that time is a way that the Chinese conception of the world. So the arrival of the Portuguese didn't just affect what was traded and what was seen and what was brought in, but it also affected to a certain extent Japanese conception of the world. In some regards, uh, the Portuguese were brought, absorbed into this, an existing conception, and in some ways they affected in very profound ways. So with that, I'll let you enjoy the rest of the show and these fantastic screens. Thank you very much.